listening to Trojan War, the podcast, history's most awesome epic. This is episode number 18 in the series. Today's episode is titled, Odysseus Ascendant. So welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 18 of Trojan War, the podcast. I have decided to title this episode, Odysseus Ascendant. Now, you'll recall that at the end of the previous episode, we left Achilles dead on no man's land out there in the middle of the Trojan plain, killed improbably by Paris's poison tip arrow lodged into Achilles' left heel. Now, we're going to pick up the plot right at that particular point and follow the events inside of the temple and on the plains of Troy as Achilles lies there in the middle of the Trojan plain all alone and dead. Well, we know immediately that Paris would have made a quick sprint for the walls of Troy. Paris, the coward, wouldn't have waited around to determine if he had actually killed Achilles. So by the time Achilles had staggered halfway across the plain in search of Greek medics for this strange new injury he had had. Recall Achilles had never been injured in battle in his entire life. Well, by the time Achilles made it across the plain, Paris would have been safely inside of the walls of the city. As for old King Priam and his teenage daughter Polyxena, well, whether they returned to Troy in complete shock or in complete delight really depends on what you believe about how much they were in on Paris's plan to attempt to and eventually assassinate Achilles. Now, what happened to Achilles' body once it made it out onto the Trojan plain is a source of some debate and some controversy. The only eyewitness account that we have to what happened actually shows up in Homer's Odyssey, uh, his sequel to the Iliad, and in Homer's Odyssey, a eyewitness character who I cannot name for fear of my no-plot-spoilers guarantee, tells us that simply we found Achilles' body and conveyed it back to the Greek camp. That's all we have by way of eyewitness accounts. Now, later sources, written sometimes significantly later in history, relay a detailed and heroic episode in which the Trojans, recognizing that Achilles was lying there dead in the middle of the plain, had stampeded out of their city, desperately hoping to capture that body and no doubt desecrate it. And at very same time as the Trojans were charging towards the body from Troy, the Greeks, recognizing that the dead man on the plain must be Achilles, charged in the opposite direction. And in this account, a fearsome battle breaks out and rages for most of the day. And in this account, the two Greek heroes are Odysseus, who single-handedly seems to hold off most of the Trojan forces, and the mighty Ajax, bulwark of the Greeks, who somehow manages to lever up Achilles' body in full armor and, fighting off Trojans, make that body back safely to the Greek lines. 
And you're welcome, if you wish, to indulge in believing that that episode is true. But events that I'm going to relay to you just in a few minutes from now might lead you, like me, to suspect that this is a little bit of after-the-fact revisionist history. Uh, uh, the fact that Ajax and Odysseus are the two and only central characters in this episode might give you pause once you learn of events which will follow in a few moments. But I'll leave that up to you. So let's get on to what we do know about what happened to Achilles after he was safely brought back to the Greek camp. Well, at that stage, we know for sure, because again, uh, the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, tells us in Book 24 that a wonderful and awesome funeral games were staged for Achilles. And those funeral games, Homer tells us, went on for 17 days. Homer goes on to further tell us that the funeral games were presided over by, of course, Thetis, uh, Achilles' ever-protective and ever-loving mum. And now that, while she couldn't save Achilles from his destiny and his terrible fate, Thetis was hell-bent on making sure that her son at least had the most heroic and glamorous funeral in the history of mortal men. So Thetis presided over the 17 days of that funeral ceremony. Apparently she came up from the Aegean Sea. All of the other sea nymphs followed her up to the Aegean Sea. And, and, and then the muses themselves arrived and possibly even some of the Olympian gods. And, and a glorious funeral was held. Uh, Thetis apparently in some accounts actually solicited the Olympian gods for prizes to be used later in the funeral games. And we have this wonderful mental image. Well, I know it's my mental image, but I'll share it with you of, uh, of Thetis flying up to Mount Olympus and, and wandering around knocking on the doors of the different 12 Olympian gods' private homes and saying, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm collecting uh, prizes for my son's funeral games. Is there something you'd like to donate? And the Olympian god in question running into his or her particular mighty palace and, and, and rummaging through the goods to find something appropriate for a that the deity also won't miss themselves. And, and then Thetis had headed down onto the plain and heaped all of this loot at the feet of Agamemnon and said, when you hold the funeral games for my son, make sure that these prizes are granted and given out to the competitors in that game. Well, let's briefly, before we get on to those funeral games, review a few things that we know about Achilles's, well, post-life accommodations, if you will. What happened to this, to, to this son of Thetis once he died? And here the sources, again, are contradictory. If we go back to our most primary and authoritative source, Homer, well, Homer doesn't offer Achilles anything particularly special or spectacular upon death. Homer's Achilles is sent off to the fields of Asphodel, that, that place where every human being who has ever died, a good, bad, glorious, or completely ignominious, ends up in the end. And, and that, that place governed over by, uh, well, Zeus and Poseidon's brother Hades. And, and we actually meet Achilles in the fields of Asphodel in a section of Homer's Odyssey. Uh, you can go check that out yourself. So that version has Achilles essentially ending up, well, dust to dust, the way that all the rest of us do after we die. But there was obviously a tradition following Homer's, which just didn't like the idea that a hero of Achilles' stature could, could end up in such a, well, a, a mediocre post-life accommodation. And so various other stories down through the ages uh, tell us or inform us that Thetis worked some particular dispensation with Zeus and Achilles ended up in the Elysian fields, uh, which I talked about in a post-story commentary. Uh, other versions of the story tell us that he ended up in other kinds of paradise. Uh, Euripides tells us later um, that Achilles ended up in uh, a place which 
well, could have been called the the Happy Islands or something like that. So you're going to have to decide where you want Achilles to end up in the end in his afterlife. And I really can't provide you with any uh, definitive authoritative answer on that. And well, until we all die, we're not really going to know where Achilles is, are we? So let's move on to the funeral games and talk about what happened during those games because something happened during those funeral games which was going to precipitate a major crisis inside of the Greek army. Now Agamemnon, of course, as commander-in-chief of Operation Trojan Storm, it was his job to look after the funeral games and Agamemnon held a standard funeral games. Uh, We've already talked about how these worked with the funeral games that Achilles helped for Patroclus, but essentially during the course of a number of days, a whole series of prizes ranging from uh, nominal little token prizes up to glorious, wonderful prizes were offered up and various Greeks from common foot soldiers up to mighty warlords were invited to compete for prizes appropriate to their particular station inside of society. So if you were a common foot soldier, you might uh, compete for a common tiny little bronze sword that allegedly maybe Achilles had held on one particular day, and then that would be your keepsake. And if you were a, a fair to Midland warlord, then you could compete for some of the more valuable prizes or even some of the prizes that the deities um, donated to the contest. But the ultimate prize that everybody had their eye on, the ultimate prize in that contest, of course, was the armor and the glorious shield of Achilles. Now, you will remember that I described this armor and this glorious shield in some detail in an earlier episode. This was the armor and the shield that the blacksmith god Hephaestus managed to craft in one short night so that Achilles, when he went into battle against Hector, would have something useful to wear because Achilles, you remember, had lost his earlier armor when Patroclus had donned that armor and then Hector had stripped it from the body of dead Patroclus. So this armor, we are told, was absolutely spectacular. It was magical. It was God-made and and, and so fearsome that men had a hard time even looking at the armor without shirking away in fear. So this was the ultimate prize of the contest. And when we got to the granting of this prize, um, Agamemnon stepped forward and announced that there was now only one prize left and any man who wished to claim this prize as his own should step forward at this point. But I need to caution you folks. When Agamemnon made that statement, he fully expected that only one man in the entire assembled multitudes would dare or presume to step forward and claim this ultimate prize of honor. And that, of course, is because we were in an honor-based society. Now, I've already talked about this, but just to briefly review the concept, because it is absolutely, absolutely salient to what's about to happen, inside of a Bronze Age honor-based culture, Honor was accrued on an individual through the material possessions or wealth which they were granted or given or rewarded by their peers. So this particular bronze suit of armor of Achilles and this glorious shield were the ultimate, ultimate valuable honor-based possession. And the next thing I just need to remind you of, of course, is inside of this Bronze Age honor culture, well, honor was a zero-sum game. So whoever on that plane, whoever among the Greeks ultimately walked away with Achilles' armor and Achilles' glorious shield, well, that man would accrue to himself more honor than any other man on the Trojan plane had. So that's the way that honor worked. 
Now, to avoid awkward and embarrassing and dicey situations, inside of most honor-based societies, there's a very, very clear internal understanding of one's place in the society. In other words, honor-based societies don't have to write down the rules, but every man inside of these societies has a clear understanding of their place or their status inside of the community, and men inside of this community, to make this model work, never dare to presume to overreach their particular place or status in society, because that leads to chaos. So when Agamemnon stepped forward and said, who claims the armor of Achilles, Agamemnon naturally assumed that, well, one man would step forward and all other Greek men would defer to that man and recognize that that one man had the greatest honor in the beach. And so the armor would simply be handed over to that man. That was the way that this sort of system worked. So you can imagine, ladies and gentlemen, Agamemnon's despair, shock, and realization that he had a significant problem on his hands when Agamemnon invited any man who desired or deserved or believed he was accrued the honor of the armor to step forward, and Agamemnon saw that two warlords, not one warlord, had stepped forward claiming that armor. Now, the two men who stepped forward are absolutely critical to our story. The first to step forward was Ajax, the bulwark of the Greeks, by far and away the indisputed best fighter remaining in the Greek or the Trojan world on that beach. Ajax, as you know, was second among the Greeks only to Achilles in his military prowess. And Ajax, of course, as you know from an earlier episode, had fought Hector, the great Trojan champion, to a draw. So Ajax was brilliant. Uh, he was by far and away the greatest fighter remaining on the planet as far as Greeks or Trojans were concerned. But the other man to step forward was Odysseus. Now, Odysseus, of course, was no great fighter. He was a fair to middle and warlord soldier at most. But Odysseus, as everybody knew, was the most intelligent, crafty, cunning, wily strategist that the Greeks or the Trojans had and absolutely essential to Operation Trojan Storm's success going forward. And there is the problem. Agamemnon looked at Odysseus and Ajax and recognized that he was going to have to select between them. Now, traditionally, if in the rare cases where two men disputed their place of highest honor in the tribe, if traditionally when this sort of thing happened, then somebody would mediate by proposing a contest, and, and the winner of that contest would be declared the man with the greatest honor or the greatest status inside of the community. And Agamemnon, as host and commander-in-chief of these games, well, it fell to Agamemnon then to declare a contest. He was going to have to set up some sort of terms of some sort of a contest directly between Ajax and Odysseus, and whoever won that contest would be given the honor armor of Achilles and declared the most honorable man on the beach. So Agamemnon had to decide who he wanted to win the contest before he decided on what the terms of that particular contest would be. Well, Agamemnon had some hard decisions to make at this point, but he reviewed his remaining warlord forces and the status of the army on the beach. Inside of that tent, the primary warlords that Agamemnon had left to work with were Nestor, the geriatric windbag increasingly lost in memories of the good old days, which he no longer remembered quite clearly and nobody else on the beach could recall at all. Uh, 
uh, next to old man Nestor, Agamemnon had his poor brother Menelaus still hopelessly and erroneously believing that the Greeks were on the beach solely for the purpose of restoring Helen to him. And, and then there was Diomedes, a, a brilliant king and a great warlord, but essentially just a minor, lesser version of Ajax himself. That's what Agamemnon had to work with, aside from Ajax and Odysseus. And when Agamemnon looked across the plain at Troy, he recognized that the Trojans had lost their only serious fighting man, Hector, and that at this point forward, Troy was going to stay holed up inside the walls of their city. So when Agamemnon calculated the math, he recognized that if it came down to the brawn of Ajax or the brains of Odysseus, then what the Greek army needed at this point going forward was definitely the brains of Odysseus. Ajax's mighty military strength would no longer be required by this army. So Agamemnon fixed the terms of the contest to ensure that the winner was Odysseus. Instead of Agamemnon declaring that there would be some sort of a military or sporting contest, which, well, Ajax clearly would have won, Agamemnon turned around to the assembled warlords and announced that the winner of the armor would be the warlord who could prepare and deliver the best piece of oratory on why that warlord deserved the armor. And in setting up that particular contest, Agamemnon guaranteed that Ajax would lose and Odysseus, the brilliant wordsmith, and the craftiest and the wiliest of the Greeks, would certainly, certainly win. Now up until this point, folks, I have a lot of sympathy with Agamemnon, something I rarely have. But now Agamemnon compounded the problem through what can only be considered, in my view, a, a, a moronic and boneheaded decision on Agamemnon's part to, well, avoid being culpable for having to make the decision himself. So instead of Agamemnon saying, I will listen to the two speeches and then I will judge, Agamemnon, to extricate himself from any of these particular issues, Agamemnon turned around and said, and once the two warlords deliver their speeches, the remaining warlords will, by force of applause, determine who the most honorable man on the beach is, and that man will receive the armor. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what that meant is that the man who lost this contest, and we know that that man is going to be Ajax, was not only going to be insulted and humiliated by Agamemnon's decision, but further insulted and humiliated by the fact that the decision had been rendered by the collective body and opinion of Ajax's peers. It's hard to imagine a way in which Agamemnon could have more devastated, humiliated, dishonored, and enraged Ajax. But that's what Agamemnon chose to do. Well, Ajax was invited to speak first, and Ajax, a simple, plain-spoken soldier, stood up and offered the resume of the things that he had done on the beaches of Troy over the last decade. And ladies and gentlemen, from a military perspective, Ajax offered a pretty darned impressive resume. He certainly had been the bulwark of the Greeks. And many, many times over the last decade, particularly in the last few months, when the Trojans had been about to set the Greek fleet on fire, Ajax had been the only warlord left standing and uninjured, and he had single-handedly saved the Greeks from destruction. But Ajax, uh, being a plain-spoken soldier and not a savvy politician or public speaker, had, had, had not drawn the army and the warlord's attention to this in any great detail. He had simply said, uh, Ajax did good heavy lifting for the last 10 years. Ajax deserves the armor. 
And then, of course, it was the opportunity for Odysseus to speak. And, and it's really interesting. I mean, Odysseus stepped forward. And the things that Odysseus reviewed, well, not a single one in the list was a act of military prowess. Uh, in direct contrast to Ajax, everything on Odysseus's list was an act of behind-the-scenes, backstage pulling of strings and political cunning and guile. Odysseus started by reminding the warlords that it was he who had crafted the oath of the quartered horse, which had ultimately compelled the entire Greek world to come to the rescue of Helen. There would be no Operation Trojan Storm without that oath of the quartered horse, Odysseus very rightly pointed out. Next, Odysseus reminded the assembled warlords that once the oath of the quartered horse had been taken, he had been the warlord who had managed to ferret out Thetis, who had been hiding her son Achilles disguised as a girl, and Odysseus had been the clever warlord who had revealed that disguise and then essentially outthought Thetis to the point where Achilles was given permission to join the army. Odysseus then went on to point out that when the winds did not blow and the entire Greek operation Trojan storm looked as though it were going to be grounded on the beach of Aulis, and all the other warlords had no idea how to possibly get Iphigenia to the beach so she could be sacrificed and change those winds. It was, well, Odysseus who had come up with the clever plan of the fake wedding to Achilles that had done the trick. At Troy, Odysseus went on to remind everybody listening, he had been the one who had delicately intervened when Apollo had been upset and sent plague into the Greeks, and it had been through Odysseus's diplomatic offices with the god Apollo that the Greeks had managed to live another day. So in short, ladies and gentlemen, Odysseus presented a resume of behind-the-scenes backroom pulling of strings, which was, in Odysseus's view, much more critical to the operation than anything Ajax had done through fighting alone. And then finally, because Odysseus was bright enough to recognize that this was going to be the swaying argument, Odysseus pointed out to the assembled warlords that he, Odysseus, had a plan for going forward. He had devised a strategy for thwarting fate and deadly destiny and finding a way to destroy those walls of Troy, which, well, the prophecy said, would never be destroyed by an enemy force. And Odysseus said, if you award me the armor, I will share that particular plan with you, gentlemen. And of course, that had done it. The warlords had roared their approval for Odysseus's speech and likely for his let's get off this damn beach as quickly as possible promised strategy. And Odysseus was awarded the glorious armor of Achilles. And as for Ajax, well, Ajax in shame, humiliation, disgrace, and despair rushed from the tent of the warlords to the far end of the beach and hid himself from their sight. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the next day, when Ajax didn't appear at the council of the warlords in Agamemnon's tent, they sent out search parties and eventually some Greek soldier stumbled across the body of Ajax. They found Ajax down by the lonely shores of the Aegean Sea. Ajax, the bulwark of the Greeks, the mightiest of the heroes, had taken a sword, lodged it into a crevice in the rock, and then Ajax had impaled himself on his own sword and taken his own life. The sword, when they removed it from Ajax's body, they realized was the very sword which Hector had given Ajax as a prize of honor after Ajax and Hector had fought to that long ultimately in a draw duel that they had fought 
episodes and episodes ago. And ladies and gentlemen, perhaps it is fitting that Ajax, the last of the heroes in that beach, chose to take his life using a weapon which conferred dignity and herohood upon him by the ultimate hero and the ultimate courageous combatant in that beach, Hector himself. Now, I'm just going to pause here for a moment. Uh, there are later versions of the Ajax story. The playwright Sophocles, many centuries later, writes a play about Ajax in which Sophocles suggests that, well, Ajax was, after not being awarded the armor, driven mad by a particular god or goddess. And, and in his rage, Ajax apparently had done some ridiculous and silly things. He had uh, slaughtered some livestock of the Greeks under the mad assumption that he was actually slaughtering Greek warlords himself. And, and then Sophocles says, when Ajax had recovered from his madness in, in shame and humiliation, that behaving in such a silly fashion, Ajax had suicided. But ladies and gentlemen, with all respect to Sophocles, a much better playwright than I will ever be storyteller. I think that Sophocles sanitizes the story of Ajax a little wee bit. I think the truth of the matter is, and we don't need the other story or Sophocles' account to help us, is that Ajax recognized when Agamemnon and the other warlords had decided that Odysseus was the most honorable man in that beach, that, well, the days or the age of the heroic men was over. Ajax's closest companion, Achilles, was dead. Ajax's equal on the other side, Hector, was dead. And, and, and now Ajax, well, like a tired old workhorse who had put in his long, long time but was no longer needed, well, Ajax no doubt believed that by not being awarded the armor, he was being sent off to, well, the hero's glue factory, if you will. Later on, well, not much later than Homer, a Greek writer named Hesiod, writing about 700 BCE in, a, in an interesting book called Works and Days, Hesiod briefly describes what Hesiod refers to as the five ages of men. And, and Hesiod, after accounting a golden age where men lived in an Eden-like existence, uh, Hesiod then goes on to talk about a silver age where men were weird and different than they are now, and then a bronze age. And then Hesiod gets on to the age which interests us, which is what Hesiod calls the age of the heroes. And and, and in that age, Hesiod points out, the heroes who fought at Troy were the exemplars of the best men of this age. They were bigger, they were stronger, they were mightier, they could, they could fight longer, they could lift heavier walks, they could do more heroic deeds. And Hesiod laments they were also more honest, more dignified, more honorable, and more plain-spoken and good-hearted in their dealings. And Hesiod, writing in 700 BCE, about the same time as Homer is penning the Iliad, laments that the age of the heroes ended at the end of the Trojan War and was replaced by the age of what Hesiod calls the Iron Men, the Iron Age, where men were smaller, weaker, and far, far less noble and much more prone to dealing with their life situations, not through honor and combat, but through stealth, guile, cunning, and every dirty trick in the book. So perhaps Ajax, impaling himself with that sword, recognized that he, the hero's days were over, and that, well, Odysseus, the man of iron, it was now his time. Well, after the death of Ajax, Odysseus recognized that he had competed for the prize. He had claimed and won the most honor on the beach. And given the situation of the warlords that was left, 
it was going to now have to be the Odysseus show if the Greeks were going to get off that beach. And Odysseus also widely recognized that he better quickly deliver some sort of a public relations coup because there were an awful lot of Greek warlords and an awful lot of Ajax's foot soldier contemporaries in that beach who were less than delighted with Odysseus's temerity in claiming the prize and absolutely enraged at the idea that Odysseus, by taking the armor, had put Ajax into that situation of, of ultimate humiliation and suicide. So Odysseus immediately got to work. He recognized that the first thing he needed to do was restore, well, the Greek spirits inside of the Greek camp and also to shake the confidence of the Trojans. You've got to recognize, folks, that Troy is feeling a little bit better in the last 72 hours than it has in a long time. Uh, if you think about it, they've, they've just seen their two greatest sources of danger killed. I mean, Achilles is now gone and, and, and as the Trojans are celebrating the death of Achilles, well, then Ajax is gone and... If you're a Trojan, you might actually begin to get an inkling of hope that there is some possible solution that you are actually going to get out of this war alive. So Odysseus needed something immediate to restore Greek optimism and to devastate the Trojans back into a situation of hopelessness. So what Odysseus decided to do was steal a Trojan statue right from out of the heart of the city of Troy itself. Now, the statue, before I get on to the plan, was referred to as the Palladium. And the backstory in the Palladium is that this tiny little statue, the Trojans were quite convinced, uh, it was a little wooden statue to the goddess Athena in her guise as Pallas Athene, which was why it was called the Palladium. And the statue apparently had fallen to earth inside of the walls of Troy and as a fireball. And, and it was a little piece of wood statue and that the Trojans had placed this inside of a temple to the god Pallas Athene inside of the walls of their city. And the Trojan prophecy said that so long as the statue of Pallas Athene, the Palladium was inside the walls of Troy, then Troy would never fall. Now, I, I can't help but comment as a storyteller on well, well, the bitter irony of the Trojans' uh, faith and belief in this particular statue to the, of all goddesses, Athena, who over the last, well, 10 years has gone out of her way to do every possible thing she can to destroy the people of Troy. But who am I, a humble storyteller, to question the, the integrity or the religious convictions of a cultural group? And if the Trojans want to believe that Athena will save them, then, well, the Trojans are going to keep that statue of the Palladium safe. But Odysseus recognized that if he could steal that statue right out from under the people of Troy's nose, well, it would be a public relations coup of the First Order, both inside of the Greek camp and inside of Troy. So Odysseus went to work. The first thing that Odysseus did is he had a quiet work with the head Greek priest and said, wait for further instructions. And then the next night, Odysseus, with the help of Diomedes, stole the statue of the Palladium. It turned out to not be very difficult. Uh, you'll recall, ladies and gentlemen, way back in episode 10, an episode I titled Beachhead, that Odysseus had, when he had been brought through the city of Troy with the tablets of war or peace, and Priam had instructed his chariot drivers to give Odysseus and Menelaus a shock and awe tour of the city, well, Odysseus had taken careful note of all the military fortifications inside of Troy, right down to, I believe I informed you, the width of the sewage drains underneath the Trojan walls leading out of the city. And on the night in question, when Odysseus, accompanied by Diomedes, stole the Palladium, 
What they did is they first dressed as starving beggars, a, a very convincing disguise inside of Troy by this stage in the war, and then Odysseus and Diomede shimmied their way through one of those sewage drains in a very non-Bronze Age hero sort of fashion, made their way inside the walls of the city, and in short order, found the temple to the goddess Athena, bundled up the little wooden statue of Pallas Athene, the Palladium, and brought it back quietly to the Greek camp. Odysseus the next day then gave a knowing nod and wink to the head Greek priest who announced in front of the warlords in the assembled Greek army that he had just received a message from the gods and the gods had said that if the Greeks managed to steal the Palladium, then the gods would shine on the Greeks and the Trojans would definitely lose the war. Well, well, Odysseus had turned around in public and said, well, well, it's impossible. The Palladium is inside of the city. We have no hope of possibly stealing it, you foolish priest. Well, maybe I will try anyway, if the gods will favor us. And then, miracle of miracles, about 48 hours later, Odysseus arrived with the Palladium. The gods are on our side, Odysseus declared. Now, for the Greeks, of course, this was a massive bolster to their confidence. And you have to imagine the situation inside of Troy. Ladies and gentlemen, Odysseus had just engaged in a massive act of psychological warfare. He had managed to get an enemy force right into the heart of, well, his enemy's greatest city and then steal or destroy something of his enemy's greatest value right from underneath their noses. And, well, we have all kinds of contemporary and historical examples of how that can shatter a people's confidence. So, step one was looked after, which led Odysseus on to the next major coup that he needed to do. And that was the problem of destroying Paris, Prince of Troy. Now, you might be wondering why Odysseus wanted to actually destroy Paris, Prince of Troy. After all, wouldn't you want him to inherit the throne and then govern with the competence which he had proven in his, uh, in his life as heir apparent? But something funny had actually happened inside of Troy since the death of Achilles. And what had happened, of course, is that the public relations team inside of Troy had gone to work and Paris was no longer loathed and reviled by the Trojan people, but was now being celebrated across the streets of Troy and right through the royal palace as Paris, savior of Troy, vanquisher of the mighty Achilles. Now, the true story of how Paris had, quote, vanquished mighty Achilles was kept quietly under wraps, and, and the propaganda machine went to work to say that Paris had actually managed to kill Achilles in single combat, and Paris was the greatest and most heroic fighter remaining on the Trojan plain, and the Trojan people, desperate for some new deus ex machina to help them out of their misery, had immediately rallied improbably and ironically around Paris, Prince of Troy. Now, Odysseus, of course, couldn't have helped but enjoy the delicious irony in this particular rallying around Paris, but Odysseus was also enough of a student of history to recognize that Troy would not be the first or the final nation in world history whose panicked people would, well, at least temporarily, rally behind the banner of a profoundly unqualified, self-absorbed, and clueless political candidate. So Odysseus recognized that he had to kill Paris before Paris actually got the mantle of leadership. Now, this was going to present a problem. Uh, they had done a public relations image makeover on Paris, but Paris still was not going to step out and actually fight any Greek in man-to-man -man combat. Uh, once a coward, always a coward. But Odysseus watched, and he noticed that Paris, with his newfound swagger and delighting in his newfound popularity with the masses, 
Paris had reverted to a pattern which he had not well done for some long time. Paris, Prince of Troy, had taken to, well, donning that leopard skin outfit that I think I told you about many, many episodes ago, brandishing two fearsome spears, which Paris really didn't know how to throw, in his hands, and, and then striding up and down on the battlements of the city of Troy. And, and every night at sunset, if you waited, you could see Paris up there striding back and forth in the battlements in this ridiculous leopard skin outfit, waving these javelins up and down in the air and yelling out mighty boasts like, I am Paris, vanquisher of Achilles, I am Paris, heir apparent to Troy, I am Paris, hear me roar, that sort of thing. Now, Paris, of course, was quite safe in doing so. He had had 10 years to watch Greeks attempt to launch arrows up against those walls, and Paris knew with absolute confidence that not a single arrow had ever made it to the top of the battlements. So Paris was free to prance, preen, and boast to his heart's content on those battlement walls. That is, until the day, about five days later after he started doing this, when Paris, in the middle of one of his mighty boasts, was struck by an arrow. And Paris, Prince of Troy, came crashing, crumbling to the ground. The Trojans, when they recognized Paris had fallen, had brought him into the palace and placed Paris on his point of most comfort and security, the bed of Helen, then the priests had come in and recognized that the arrow had only actually lodged in Paris's shoulder. It looked like a non-life-threatening wound in spite of the fact that Paris was howling and screaming mightily. But when the Trojan physicians removed the arrow from Paris's wound and noted it was clean and detected no signs of poison, they were baffled because Paris continued to howl in pain and it was obvious that something bad had hit Paris. So you will remember and recall, ladies and gentlemen, that there is only one bow in the entire planet which would have had the force to launch an arrow high enough to make it to the top of Troy's battlements. And there was only one set of arrows in the entire world, ladies and gentlemen, which had enough, well, if you will, GPS guiding magic inside of them to be sure that they would lodge in an appropriate point on Paris's body. And there was only one poison tip on those arrows, which could have guaranteed that Paris, Prince of Troy, would suffer from a long, painful, slow, agonizing, but inevitable death. So, let's go back and remember Episode 10, Beachhead. You will recall that when the Greeks' island hopped their way towards Troy, way back ten long years ago, they were accompanied by a particular Greek warlord named Philoctetes. Nothing unusual about the man, save for the fact that he had in his possession the former bow and magic poison-tipped arrows of the Greek hero Heracles, or Hercules if you prefer. And that Philoctetes on one of the islands, when the Greeks had landed to reprovision their boats, had been bit by a poisoned serpent and, well, left in that island by the Greeks because they were pretty convinced that Philoctetes was going to die. Well, you might have forgotten the episode. But Odysseus, ten years later, certainly hadn't. And when Odysseus saw Paris prancing and preening from the battlements, Odysseus recognized that he required the magic bow and the arrows of Heracles, now in the possession of who had ever got them once Philoctetes had died. 
So Odysseus took a quick boat back to that particular island, searching for the new owner of the magic weaponry, and much to Odysseus's surprise and delight, discovered Philoctetes, very much alive, healthy, and fully recovered from his poison serpent bite. And Philoctetes was absolutely delighted with the concept and the prospects of returning to the beaches of Troy, launching one of his magic arrows, and winning for himself by killing Paris eternal fame and glory which is precisely what had happened. Odysseus and Philoctetes had walked out onto no man's land in the plain one evening, watched Paris's prance and preen in leopard skin show for just a moment, and then Philoctetes had launched one arrow up at Paris, which had struck Paris and hit him hard in the shoulder. Well, the physicians, not being able to come up with a cure and recognizing that there must be some poison beyond their comprehension inside of the tip of that arrow, the physicians had turned matters over to the Trojan priests. And as Paris lay in incredible pain and slowly dying, well, the priests had gone to work. They had stepped up onto the battlements of Troy and for a full day consulted the flight of birds, consulted the auguries, if you will, trying to find if there was any possible medicine or any possible healing arts which could save Paris, Prince of Troy. And after a full day of augury consultation, the head priest had come back and made a report to Priam, Hecuba, and Paris lying there in the bed. There is, the head priest said, one possible salvation. There is a woman, well, technically not a woman, but an immortal forest nymph. She lives high on the slopes of Mount Ida, in a tiny stone shepherd's hut, all alone. And that woman, the auguries tell us, possesses the knowledge, the magic, and the healing arts to save the life of Prince Paris of Troy and indeed restore him to full and vibrant health. Regrettably, the priests proclaimed, the auguries will not reveal the woman's name. So we have no idea who she is or precisely where she lives. And once again, folks, we are back into that delicious territory of nemesis, karma, dramatic irony, or, well, shamelessly self-indulgent soap opera, depending on how you want to tell the story. But Paris propped himself up on the elbows of the bed, turned to the head priest and spoke. I know the woman's name. Her name is Anoni. She was my wife once. Summon her. Tell her that her husband Paris is dying. And she will come. And she will save me. Well, ladies and gentlemen, just since it's been very, very many episodes ago, let's recall the final scene in episode number four of Trojan War, the podcast, the episode titled The Judgment of Paris. And you will recall that Way back about 13 years ago, Anoni and Paris had fallen desperately head over heels in love with each other and moved into a tiny shepherding hut up on Mount Ida where Paris, a man of very little ambition, even as a shepherd, looked after a flock of 15 sheep. And they likely had four, maybe five happy years together until that fateful day when, well, three goddesses appeared and invited Paris to judge a beauty contest, which evolved into a bribery contest. And Paris offered a bribe from Aphrodite, goddess of everything south of the waste, had chosen as his bribe for awarding Aphrodite the golden apple, the insatiable lust 
of the hottest, most beautiful, stunning woman on the planet. That had been Aphrodite's bribe. And then Paris had returned to the shepherd's hut, explained this wonderful bribe to his bride, his wife Anoni, and summarily turned around and walked out on the only good thing that had ever happened to Paris in his entire unfortunate life. Now, I would ask you to recall the words of Anoni when she realized that Paris was walking out on him. Through tears of sorrow or tears of rage or possibly tears of sorrow and rage, Anoni had spoken. Paris, someday, Paris, you will need me. And on that day, I want you to remember what you did to me just now. And of course, when you say lines like that in a story, you get to come back and use those lines later on in the plot. Well, the chariot was dispatched from the walls of Troy. Paris provided the charioteer with instructions to his former shepherd's hut, and the chariot, accompanied by priests, accompanied by physicians, made their way as quickly as they could to the stone house of Anoni. They banged on the front door of that house, and Anoni invited the delegation, if you will, to enter the hut. And then the head priest turned and spoke. Are you Anoni? Yes, she replied. Are you the former wife of Paris? Yes, she replied. Do you have the magic, the medicine, and the healing arts to save Paris? Yes, she replied. And is there still time? The priests asked with bated breath. Yes, she replied. And will you come then, my lady, and save your husband? And Anoni replied, Paris is no longer my husband. Paris has chosen a new wife. Her name is Helen. Let Helen save her husband. And with that, Anoni closed the door and walked away. And two days after that, Paris died on the bed of Helen, his current wife. Now, folks, my time-honored, well, I suppose it's not time-honored, but my podcast tradition up to this point is to end each episode of a podcast when a great man has died. You will know that I did this with Patroclus, I did this with Hector, and I did this only recently with Achilles. So in keeping with that podcast tradition, I am not going to end my podcast episode now. Because, ladies and gentlemen, no great man has died. And you know, even if I wanted to, I could not tell you about the funeral games of Paris and how he was buried or burned or whatever they did, because neither Greek nor Trojan from the time period of Paris or any storytellers from that time forward have taken the time, the trouble, or the bother to account those particular events. So instead, I think what I will do is I will wrap up this particular podcast episode by turning instead to Helen poor Paris's second wife, and reviewing her situation. With Paris dead, well, Aphrodite's promise to Paris, her promise of the insatiable lust of the hottest woman in history, well, that promise expires. 
So after 10 long, miserable, gut-wrenching, horrifying years of Helen's Aphrodite-induced desire for a man that she otherwise loathed, well, Helen, at the death of Paris, was finally free from Aphrodite. So what did Helen do? Well, I like to imagine that the first thing she did was sat in a hot bathtub for a very long time, reveling in the joy and the release of finally being able to scrub the smell of that man, that loathsome, creepy, irksome, horrible man, finally and once and for all, off of her body. But sadly, I cannot report that Helen's misery is over. Because the minute that Paris died, Troy's remaining greasy princes, the masters of dancing princes, well, they burst into a fierce competition for Helen, every one of them eager to sample a slice of history's hottest pie. Well, ultimately, after days of debate and arguing in the Trojan throne room, a prince named Deiphobus was awarded Helen's hand in marriage. And though Helen protested that marriage, well, she was given absolutely no choice at all. And though Deiphobus made Helen's skin crawl, that did not stop him from taking poor Helen against her will again and again and again. And poor Helen of Troy, well, her miseries just continued. And I think I will leave the podcast episode now in deference to poor Helen and leave you not with that sad story, but with, well, a plot teaser for the episode to come. Odysseus, now the man thoroughly in charge of the Greek operation Trojan Storm, has recognized that at this stage, the Greeks have one of two options. Going forward, they can either hunker down on the beach and wait for the last of the Trojans to starve and ultimately surrender, or going forward, they can try to hasten that process by implementing the most audacious and implausible plan to thwart prophecy, to find a way, as Odysseus said, to defeat those words, those words that say the walls of Troy will never be destroyed by an enemy force. And Odysseus, in episode 19, will go to work on formulating just such a plan. So for some of you, it's time to say goodbye. And for the rest, of course, who I'm beginning more and more to suspect is really almost all of us, it's time to head over to the post-story commentary. And what I'm going to do in that post-story commentary is I'm going to review the Anoni story. I will share with you some of the multiple accounts which yours truly, the storyteller, rejected in formulating my own plot line. And then I will, well, enter into a broader discussion of the role that the Anoni story has played in conveying and reinforcing the, well, the cultural mores and values of societies from the Bronze Age up to the present. I think you will find my take on the Anoni story particularly interesting, compelling, even if at the end you decide that it's not your take but it will be fun. So for some of you, have an absolutely awesome day. And for the rest of you, well, we'll pick up in the post-story commentary in about five or six seconds. So ladies and gentlemen, just before we leap into the post-story commentary, I want to take a few moments and tell you about the website which supports this particular podcast series. 
The website, as a lot of you already know, is titled trojanwarpodcast.com. And the reason that I want to take a moment to talk about it is because I think that that particular website I've designed will be of use to many of you, particularly those of you who are educators. But on the other hand, you might also find it interesting if you just want to be counted among those who like to be educate-ed. So here's essentially how the website operates and why I think it's worth you taking a look at it or at least being aware of how it operates. If you click on trojanwarpodcast.com, the website, what you will do is you will find yourself taken to a page which lists as individual posts every one of the episodes of this entire series. Now, if you click on any particular one of those posts or episodes, what will happen is a new web page will open up for you. So, for example, you could click on a post, well, episode four, The Judgment of Paris, or episode number 17, Achilles' Heel, and, well, you will be immediately taken to a web page dedicated to supporting that particular episode of the podcast. What you'll find there is you will find a short teaser sentence or two, which essentially is designed to give you a clue, but no real details on the story which is going to follow. But then I think you'll find the thing that would be particularly useful for you if you were an educator. And that is that for each one of the episodes of Trojan War the Podcast, I have written a synopsis, a precy, an executive summary, I suppose what you choose to call it depends on the particular branch of academe that you come from. But essentially what it is, is it's me trying to provide a quick and concise summary in written form of the key concepts and ideas which I discuss and talk about in the post-story commentary. Now, to make things easy for you, what I've done is I've provided each one of these uh, precy or synopsis with a very useful and obvious title. So, for example, one of the titles is, Did a Guy Named Homer Exist? And Did He Write the Iliad? And another of the titles in another one of these postings is, Achilles and the Hero Archetype, and that's just designed to save you time if you're scanning through really quickly and you want to try to remember what I talked about in that particular episode. The other thing I've provided, which might be useful for you, is that I've given you a time marker. I tell you precisely where inside of the podcast the post-story commentary begins, and I also tell you how long the post-story commentary lasts. So those are the things that I think would be the most use to you. And just some of the other things, each page inside of the episode, each of these uh, unique web pages per episode, you will also find on that page a variety of images. So for example, famous works of art, sculpture, pottery, all that sort of thing, while depicting the key scenes from the story that I told. And when I put together that list of images, I've endeavored to include as much as I possibly can all of the, well, the famous or the iconic works of art associated with the episode. So if you're looking at The Judgment of Paris, then you will certainly see Rubens' version of that particular painting, along with Raphael's version of that particular painting. And, and, and well, to that point, I also attempt as much as I can to include the name of the artist and the year of the particular piece of art. And, and then just to keep things fun and fresh, I've also included an awful lot of fun contemporary images alongside the classic ones. For good measure, sometimes I even throw in links to songs, YouTube videos, famous poems, academic essays, all that sort of thing. So there's, there's quite a lot of fun, useful pedagogically beneficial and helpful stuff sort of sitting there on each page. Now, finally, each episode's webpage also offers an archives function, and essentially what it is is an internal keyword search engine. So from any particular place on the entire TrojanWarPodcast.com website, you can type in a name, for example, Diomedes, or you can search a concept, for example, Aristea, 
And when you click on the name Diomedes or click on Aristea, well, then the website will automatically list for you each episode where that particular name or that particular concept is featured. And that can be an incredible time saver if you're going, well, I remember, but there are a whole lot of episodes and, and where was it that Jeff talked about Diomedes and where was it that he mentioned the River Styx? And, and well, this is all done for you. The archive function does that perfectly. Finally, and last of all, my website offers a contact page, and that's your very best way to talk to me and be very certain that you get a response back from me. And I would love to hear from you with questions, comments, suggestions, wisdom, insights, or even invitations to come perform live at your events. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is my short little shout out to TrojanWarPodcast.com and my very own website. So now let's head into the post-story commentary. Now, I told you I was going to spend the post-story commentary playing around with the Paris Anoni story and, well, exploring some of the different ways that story has been told, uh, the similarities in the different tellers, uh, some of the differences in the telling of the Paris Anoni story, and, and, and then get on to, well, my own particular take on the role that this Paris Anoni story has played in conveying some cultural values or mores down through the centuries following Homer. So what I'd like to do is start by basically talking about the barest barebone facts, which every storyteller agrees on. And, and, and here are the facts of the Anoni stories, which are not in dispute. And the facts are very simple. Paris gets hit by Philoctetes' arrow. The priests discern that they need the services of a particular forest nymph named Anoni. Paris slightly recognizes that this particular Anoni is his former wife, who he abandoned in search of history's hottest and most beautiful desirable woman. Paris provides the priests and the Trojans with guided directions to Anoni's hut. The priests arrive at the hut of Anoni. They ask her, can you heal Paris? Anoni replies, yes, I have the healing arts. And then they say, will you save Paris? And Anoni summarily says, no, I will not. Now, how she says, no, I will not, seems to vary, but in most cases, Anoni turns around and says something to the effect of, uh, Paris has chosen to lie in Helen's bed, that's a bed he's made, so let Helen look after saving him. And that's the end of the story. And then, of course, the one other event which all of the tellers agree on is that shortly thereafter, at some undisclosed date, Paris dies. Now, there are some really cool variants on, well, the story uh, at this point, which I'll just share with you. Most of the standard versions of the story, the one I told you, have, well, Paris on his deathbed inside of Troy sending a delegation to Anoni's hut. But there's another Greek tradition, which basically has Paris somehow staggering up from this deathbed where he is dying with this poisoned arrow and somehow managing to personally make it up onto the slopes of Mount Ida all on his own. And and, and then you get to have a, a, a delicious, hyperly romantic scene where Paris, in agony and pain, bangs against the door of his former home and, and his former wife, Anoni, steps out and, and Paris gets to say, Anoni, Anoni, will you save me, please? And Anoni gets to visually see the man that she loved once many years ago, obviously in, in, in mortal pain. And, and then, of course, Anoni gets to turn around and personally reject Paris and, 
and I can see why storytellers like this version because, well, it just amps up the sort of uh, romantic, over-the-top drama of the entire situation. And the best of these storytellers then turn around and, and have Perez realizing that he has been spurned by Anoni then while staggering down the side of Mount Ida and not making it there. And Paris, Prince of Troy, ends up dying up on the slopes of Mount Ida far, far, far from the city and the civilization which he is ultimately destined to destroy. So that's another version of the story. And then there's another variant of the story, which is equally hyper-romantic, which a more contemporary writer came up with. And, and this particular account of the story, well, Helen, hearing that Paris can be saved through, well, the healing offices of Paris's first wife, well, Helen, in this particular version of the story, somehow wants to save Paris, which is why I clearly chose to reject the version, because I just do not buy that possibility. But in this particular romantic version of the story, Helen finds Anoni. She, she makes her way up to mind Mount Ida, wanders around in the dark in the driving rain, eventually finds the hut of, of Anoni, and, and, and Helen of Troy bangs on the door of the hut. And, and then you get this wonderful storyteller scene where Helen, wife number two, the hottest, most desirable woman on the world, turns around and says to uh, Anoni, wife number one, will you please come and save my husband? I love him so much. And Anoni, in that particular version, gets to turn around and slam the door in wife number two's face. Now, it's a great story, and I and I admire the the chutzpah of of, of the uh, storyteller who came up with it. But I just cannot personally palette the idea that Helen suddenly on Paris's deathbed decides that Helen is actually in love with the creep. So I discarded that version. So what I want to do now is I want to get on to one of the strange and interesting things that happens inside of all the versions of the Anoni story after the basic bare-bones plot version, which I told you. And there is one element of the story which is common to all of them, and, and that element is this. By all accounts, Anoni, after she rejects the request to heal Paris, whether that request is delivered by a delegation, by Paris himself, or by Helen, well, in all of these accounts, Anoni, having slammed the door on the request, then very shortly thereafter reconsiders her decision, decides that she wants nothing more badly in the world than to heal and save her former husband, and goes rushing in search of Paris to save him. And in all of the accounts of the story at this point, well, Anoni arrives too late to save Paris. Paris dies. But what I find particularly interesting and somewhat, well, distressing in all of these accounts is what Anoni does after she realizes that she has arrived too late to save Paris. In every account, Anoni then takes her own life in deep regret. Now, depending on how the story is told, uh, there's versions of the story where Anoni actually makes it down to the city of Troy herself, decides to save Paris and finds him too late on his deathbed, and Anoni theatrically throws herself head first from the battlements of the palace. There's, a, there's another version where Anoni quietly retires into a part of the palace and hangs herself. Uh, likely the most lurid and popular version of the story is the version, though, where Paris doesn't actually make it back from his desperate embassy to Anoni's hut, and, 
In, in this particular popular version of the story, the shepherds on Mount Ida discover noble Prince Paris's body and erect a funeral pyre on the slopes of Mount Ida. And then, and then Anoni, having spurned Paris and realizing that she really wants to save him, goes rushing around Mount Ida, desperately looking for Paris and, and stumbles across to her horror and chalk this funeral pyre, which is already on flames. And in this particular version of the story, Anoni then turns around to the shepherds who have gathered around the funeral pyre of Paris and, and, and asks, uh, well, the Greek version of what body lies on yonder pyre? And the shepherds turn around in all accounts and say, it is Paris. And Anoni then distraught at having allowed her former husband to die, throws herself onto the funeral pyre, embraces her dead former husband, and burns there beside him. Now, lots of different storytellers going all the way back to the 4th century CE offer this version, but allow me to share the poetic version of the final parts of the story as told by Alfred Lord Tennyson, a British Victorian poet writing uh, well, this poem is penned in 1829, and, and, and Tennyson, I won't read you the entire poem, but I will pick up the scene that I just relayed when Anoni sort of steps into the valley and first sees the funeral pyre burning. Tennyson says the following. But when she gained the broader veil and saw the ring of faces reddened by the flames, enfolding that dark body which had lain of old in her embrace, she paused and then asked falteringly, Who lies on yonder pyre? But every man was mute for reverence. Then, quickly moving forward until the heat smote her brow, she lifted up a voice of shrill command, Who burns upon the pyre? Whereon their oldest and their boldest said, He who thou wouldst not heal. And all at once, the morning light of happy marriage broke through all the clouded years of widowhood. And muffling up her comely head and crying, Husband, she leapt upon the funeral pyre and mixed herself with him and passed in fire. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I could go on with additional sources, but I think that you get the idea of how hyper-romanticized this particular Anoni scene can be. But I want to stop right now and, well, get into a little bit of a Jeff the Storyteller rant, if you will. And, and, and I want to talk about this particular episode because... I have grave reservations and problems with the image of Anoni throwing herself onto the burning funeral pyre of Paris uh, or off of the battlements of Troy or wherever she decides to take her own life. And, and I want you to think about it for a moment. Uh, indulge me if you will. Paris and Anoni have been married at best for five years together up on Mount Ida, looking after Paris's nominal flock of 15 sheep before, well, Aphrodite had made Paris an offer which she could have but chose not to refuse. Now, I want to remind you that Anoni was an immortal forest nymph, timeless and ageless. So Anoni, this immortal forest nymph, had spent five years at most of an immortal life in the companionship of a self-absorbed and shallow pretty boy shepherd named Paris. And then Paris had ditched her, her, an immortal goddess, to run away in search of a hotter, sexier woman. Now, I, I have to confess, folks, that 
At this point, I am bringing my own 21st century Canadian male perspective to my reading of the tale, but in spite of that, or well, more accurately, I suppose, because of it, I have to believe that Anoni was well over Paris by 12 or 13 years after he had walked out on their marriage. Either Anoni had completely forgotten the lad, or had Anoni been keeping a close eye on geopolitical events inside of Troy, Anoni would have recognized just how fortunate she was to be done with him. And it's obvious that Anoni makes her feelings about Paris pretty clear on her initial rejection of Paris's request. In absolutely no accounts of the story does Paris, Helen, or the emissary arrive at Anoni's hut and say, will you save him? And Anoni goes, yes, because I love him. In all accounts of the story, Anoni consistently immediately responds along the lines of, well, you made your bed with another woman, Paris, so now sleep in that bed, loser. It is only once Paris is dead that Anoni regrets her decision, laments the loss of her husband, and considers, well, her suicide in her faithless husband's arms to be the appropriate response. So, for a moment, let's leave the niggling problem of whether an immortal even can commit suicide. I don't have a very broad mastery of Greek myth, and inside of my limited mastery, I can't think of a single other case where an immortal god or goddess manages to commit suicide. But it seems actually pretty clear for the sake of the story that the storytellers conveniently airbrushed over Anoni's immortality and and turned her into a mortal woman for the sake of this final suicide scene. So, what's going on here? Why the belated recognition of Anoni that she wants to save Paris, and, and, and why the suicide of Anoni when she realizes she hasn't? And I think the answer to that question is, well, pretty obvious. The Greek world of Homer was, well, fiercely patriarchal, and the experts that I have consulted when reading about the later classical world of Greece, when most of the Anoni stories were penned, was even more patriarchal than that of Homer's Bronze Age Greece. The men of this world were obsessed with one issue, and that issue inside of marriage was female marital fidelity and obedience of women to their marital vows. Now, I need to note here that the men of these time periods were not obsessed with marital fidelity in general, only female marital fidelity. Married men inside of these cultures were not expected to remain sexually faithful to their wives. In fact, even our current contemporary words like unfaithful or having an affair or adultery would have been words and concepts completely foreign to a Bronze Age or classical Greek man. In fact, the only real, well, rules governing the behavior of, of men from these time periods was that you were not allowed to sleep with another man's wife. That was a violation of Xenia, the guest host relationship. And, and the crime there wasn't, well, sleeping with another woman. It was damaging another man's property. But men in this time period were more than free to sow their wild oats as far and wide as their as their interests, their energies, and, and their opportunities allowed them, so long as the women that they were sleeping with alongside of their wives were slave women, serving women, or unmarried women who weren't promised to somebody else. 
But I need to remind you folks that the same standard did not apply to the women inside of these cultures. Married women were absolutely forbidden to have any form of, well, what we would call sexual encounters outside of those with their husbands. And for women who violated those particular rules of fidelity, well, the price of those violations was at a minimum being ostracized by the husband in the community and in most cases being killed by the husband or community. Now, there were reasons for the double standard and those reasons are reasons which are critical inside of patriarchal societies. Inside of these patriarchal societies, well, fathers passed their titles down to their sons. So, so sons, legitimate sons, received the lands, the kingdoms, the fields, the farms of their fathers. And that meant that fathers were consequently absolutely consumed with fear of inadvertently passing down their lands or titles, their properties to bastard sons. So in the days before DNA and paternity testing were possible, the best way for a man to ensure that the men being raised in his own household as his own sons were really and truly his own sons was to guarantee the absolute and scrupulous sexual fidelity of his wife. By the classical period of Greece, well, Greek men routinely locked their women up in the women's quarters of the palace to ensure that those women never even saw men outside of their immediate family. So, the cultural history and explanation for this lesson over, how does that tie to the Anoni suicide story? Well, this way, I think. Paris, the man, abandoned his wife and headed off in search of another woman to sleep with. No problems so far. Paris's crime was not in being unfaithful to Anoni, which is how we'd see it today. Paris's only crime so far in the story was his violation of Xenia, sleeping with another man's wife, in this case Menelaus's wife, Helen. But inside of Greek patriarchal society, Paris's amorous adventures in no way freed Anoni from her marital commitment to her husband Paris. Anoni was and remained a married woman whose duty was to remain faithfully for the possible return of her truant husband. Please notice that in no accounts of the story does Anoni take another husband during the missing Paris years. Instead, Anoni waits faithfully by home and hearth, standing by her man, if you will, until the day when he might return. And when Paris, well, 13 or so years, eventually does stagger back to Anoni's hut, begging Anoni to save his life, well, she first refuses. Um, even a faithful wife can be hurt, after all. But almost immediately relents and remembers her obligations to her husband and her marriage. And then Anoni dutifully rushes off to save Paris's life. And when Anoni arrives too late... Well, she has no choice but to punish herself for having just for a moment been a very bad wife. So what does Anoni do? She responds proportionally to the loss that she has caused. She throws her own body onto the flames and burns beside her dead husband, Paris, lying safely in her husband's patriarchal embrace. So, in short, folks, I can't help but see the Anoni story as a marital morality play of sorts, reflecting the values of, well, the Bronze Age, the values of the classical Greek world, and, well, later when Tennyson writes his poem, The Values of Victorian England. 
Now, some of you listening, of course, are going to rightly think I'm being more than a little heavy-handed in my analysis. You're, you're going to point out, come on, Jeff, it was just a really fun romantic story, and, and, the, and the storytellers just got carried away, and you you got to imagine that the painters would absolutely adore the, the images you could create of a noni throwing herself onto the flames. And I will concede that from my 21st century Canadian value perspective, I see patriarchal culture as a well, regrettable relic from our ancestral past that still grimly hangs on in some parts of our contemporary world. So I admit I am deconstructing this story inside of my own culture's value lens. But I would ask you at least to consider or reflect upon my take on the Anoni story and then reject it if you must. And with that, I think it's time for me to say my goodbyes. So I'd invite you to Tune in to episode 19 of the podcast, which will be available for you any day soon. The episode in which Odysseus will come up with an audacious and clever plan to thwart the prophecy that the walls of Troy will never be destroyed by an enemy force. So have yourselves an absolutely wonderful day. And since this is the 21st century, ladies and gentlemen, please remain faithful to your partner whatever gender you are. Talk to you again soon.